but um, I think personally that if we just all followed the actually incredibly stoic advice of First Lady Melania Trump, and uh, we should just all go and be best. Just be best. Be best. On a, on a note similar to that, except quoting a far more profound and wonderful thinker. Who? What? Who? <laughs> does remind me of David Foster Wallace's... No! <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And I don't know if we ever actually discussed in what order we say our names, but it's always worked out. It really yes. has. Maybe it's just the order that we joined this podcast. Actually, actually that yeah. does fall up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brevin kind of, it was kind of Brevin's brainchild, and then I just tagged along, and then you came along. And, and... Well, I'm, I'm just a guest. Like, Sam's, I, yeah. That is true. <laughs> you are our permanent special guest. The, the original plan was to do every episode featuring Sam as like a oh damn it i said last name i'll i'll, I'll bleep that oh, out yeah bleep that out i don't want to be associated with this <laughs> none of us do <laughs> i love how that's also a little unwritten rule of this podcast is that we all love it but we all none of us want to actually be associated with it professionally mm-hmm. so therefore Man, we choose this, to is this our reveal all episode anyway uh how's it going uh steven uh, not in? too shabby um i'm hyped up on coffee we got a new french press uh, so I'm, I'm pretty happy about that. There's lots of caffeine in me, so, uh, things are good. What do you, what do you have against, a, a German press or an Italian press? Well, but with Canadian French, press? you get to inherently assume that you're better than everyone. And uh, yeah. I, I want to assume that I'm better than everyone because, you know, I am. So mm. yeah, that's, yeah. It sounds like exactly something I, I the that French one. would say. Mm-hmm. Precisely. And that's why I go with the French. French press coffee, everyone drink it. How about you, Sam? It's going all right. I mean, busy as always, but um, I somehow was able to read McIntyre right before this, so we're good. Um, nice. I can't say I fully did. So um, I will say I am thoroughly impressed by the fact that you're juggling schoolwork and just casually reading After Virtue for some podcast. That like, you know, I I was meeting with a professor the other day, and I actually told him about this podcast, and he might start listening, which would be really funny. Stephen, what are you drinking right now? I am drinking some French press coffee. It's uh, I forget what kind of bean it is. It's some form of espresso that was probably a coffee ground. bean, right? Coffee what? bean. Who? I I homemade. I made it from scratch. And if you wish to make a coffee you, bean you, from you scratch, you birthed it from your own body, flesh of I, my flesh. I would like not. To, ooh, mm, mm, I'm not sure how I feel about that now. Sam, what are you drinking? I am drinking some lovely um, Arizona half and half uh, iced tea and lemonade, mm. Arnold Palmer. Which mm. brings back just amazing memories of high school because I used to drink like one of these things a day. Me too. Actually. Yeah, there. But it's like it's really good. Mm-hmm. So I bought a big jug of it and I just keep it in my fridge and drink yeah. it occasionally. When I was going to community college in high school, you know, with for the um, quick start program, what's it called? Running start. Running start. Back when we were um, first friends. Back when we were, yeah. Um, one of my very traditional like after class or before class meals was a. Uh, packet of pop tarts and arizona green tea very good very good the green tea one is good and it it adds it's got ginseng and stuff in it like yep yep yes it does yeah um as for myself i am not drinking arizona tea though i wish Uh, i am drinking a liquid with a high correlation um 
um, to death. You, you, if you drink it, you die. If you don't drink it, you also die. And everyone who has drunk it has also died. Um, it's water. I just wanted to make it a little bit more interesting. Memento Mori, yeah. everyone. Memento Mori. I, I will note that that correlation applies to both French press coffee and Arizona tea. True, you but know, not water, every- because they have water in it. Oh, oh damn it! No, yeah, yeah, but but also not everyone who has died has had Arizona iced tea or French press coffee, but everyone that, who has died true. has had water. I mean, presumably. Um, I guess maybe. Some infants. That's a dark topic. Let's yeah, go to I, I, I was back. Later. <laughs> there, there are probably some infants with. Anyway, this is a, we're obviously hitting the ground here at peak content generation. We really are, man. So yeah, this we've been talking, dear listener, for uh, like probably five to six minutes at this point. But where you are in the podcast, we're probably just going to cut almost everything. So, <laughs> you know, like two minutes, but probably best. Anyway, yes. Uh, on to McIntyre. On to McIntyre. I have taken the liberty of drawing up a brief summary. And uh, this is Chapter 13, Medieval Aspects and Occasions. So in this, we're moving from discussing Aristotle's philosophy to kind of its echoes throughout the corridors of time, as it were. And so, it, you know, first of all, it is very clearly evident that they, it, they did have echoes, given that we're still talking about him. Um, and while in those medieval times, uh, they, they didn't have podcasts to discuss his works. I'm not sure if you were aware of that, uh, but they did have a rather ancient technology known by some as paper. And with this, they were able to continue a tradition of dialogue with Aristotle. And McIntyre opens up with the premise that uh, the repudiation of the classical view of human nature that came partially during the Protestant Reformation and later more fully in the Enlightenment was precisely a repudiation of Aristotelianism. McIntyre must back this claim up as, quote, the medieval world encountered Aristotle relatively late, and even Aquinas encountered him only in translation. And when it did encounter him, what he provided was at best a partial solution to a medieval problem. That problem was how to educate and civilize human nature in a culture in which human life was in danger of being torn apart by the conflict of too many ideals, too many ways of life, end quote. The reader may be surprised by this claim. Wasn't medieval life unified under a single banner of medieval Christianity? Uh, McIntyre responds with a resounding no, citing not only Jewish and Islamic culture, but also the fact that most of Europe was still in a transition from heroic society to a Christian one, and therefore had their own social forms and stories that they drew on, some in cooperation with each other, others in tension with each other. So the project medieval ethicists found themselves confronted with, therefore, was the moralization of medieval society, which, quote, lies precisely in creating general categories of right and wrong and general modes of understanding right and wrong, and out of them a code of law, which could replace the particular bonds and fractures of an older paganism, end quote. To this, the theologians and philosophers of uh, of that time had to confront the question of the relationship of pagan to Christian virtues. This question was raised during the re-encounter with the classical texts of Cicero, Virgil, and Macrobius, and would eventually filter into, quote, curriculum not only for the schools of cathedral chapters or of regular canons, but in turn for universities, end quote. Even when you get to the universities, this would still percolate into even more powerful structures uh, as a lot of these ethicists would go on to teach kings. Uh, this isn't to say that all ethicists and philosophers were drawn, drawing upon the well of classical tradition, for the record. Some rejected all non-Christian forms of philosophy, and here we're looking particularly at you, Luther. Um, or rather, McIntyre said that Luther inherited from this tradition, but he's kind of a par exemplar. Um, 
One particular issue this project encountered was how to relate the classical virtues, justice, prudence, temperance, and courage, to the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Here, McIntyre cites Abelard in saying that the pagan account of the virtues was viewed as defective in both its, quote, conception of the supreme good and of the beliefs about the relationship of the human will to good and evil. But it is the latter that Abelard wishes to stress, end quote. Here we have a turning point, not only of the conception of the virtues, but also of the will. This is a massive paradigm shift. Quote, an individual's character may at any given time be a compound of virtues and vices, and these dispositions will preempt the will to move in one direction or another. But it is always open to the will to assent to or dissent from these promptings. Even the possession of a vice does not necessitate the performance of any particular wrong action. Everything turns on the character of the interior act of will. Character, therefore, the arena of virtues and vices, simply becomes one more circumstance external to will. The true arena of morality is that of the will and of the will alone, end quote. This paradigm shift echoes not only New Testament texts, but also Stoicism, which emphasized a single mode of uh, aret, aret being the Greek word for excellence. Uh, quote, on the Stoic view, unlike the Aristotelian, aret is essentially a singular expression and its possession by an individual and all or nothing matter. Either someone possesses that perfection which aret requires or he does not. With virtue, one has moral worth. Without it, one is morally worthless. There are no intermediate degrees. Since virtue requires right judgment, the good man is, on stoic view, also the wise man. To do what is right need not necessarily produce pleasure or happiness, bodily health or worldly or indeed any other success. None of these, however, are genuine goods. They are only good or they are goods only conditionally upon their ministering to right action by an agent with a rightly formed will. Only such a will is unconditionally good. Hence, Stoicism abandons any notion of a telos, end quote. Note here that this view of morality paradoxically takes goodness as inherently personal. Quote, for on the one hand, virtue finds purpose and points outside itself. To live well is to live the divine life. To live well is to serve not one's private purposes, but the cosmic order. Yet in each individual case, to do what is right is to act without any eye to my further purpose at all. It is simply to do whatever is right for its own sake. The plurality of the virtues and their teleological ordering is in the good life disappear. A simple monism of virtue takes its place, end quote. This changes the fundamental nature of the law in a community. Because the notion of virtue is no longer common but personal, quote, the pursuit of any private good, being often and necessarily in these circumstances liable to clash with the good of others, would appear to be at odds with the requirements of the moral law. Hence, if I adhere to the law, I will have to suppress the private self. The point of the law cannot be the achievement of some good beyond the law, for there now appears to be no such good. End quote. McIntyre sets up Stoicism as a response to a particular type of social and moral development, noting that this development, quote, strikingly anticipates some aspects of modernity. Indeed, whenever the virtues begin to lose their central place, Stoic patterns of thought and action at once reappear, end quote. Echoing the closure of the previous chapter, he says that part of the answer will be found in tension or even conflict, that this conflict will bring about moral education and refine what sort of virtues are needed. He examines this conflict by exploring the virtues of loyalty and justice, the military and chivalric virtues, and the virtues of purity and patience. In discussing the virtues of loyalty and justice, he examines the conflict between Archbishop Thomas Becket and Henry II of England. These two figures both represented causes that demanded loyalty and dispatched justice. When these two came into conflict, both saw each other as legitimate sources of power, both demanding loyalty. When Becket could not comply with an order, he submitted himself to martyrdom. When Henry II brought about his death, he occasioned penance of a very severe kind. 
uh, both inhabited a single narrative structure and, quote, in the medieval quarrel, agreement in narrative understanding is manifested also in agreement about the virtues and vices, end quote. This sort of narrative also presupposes a virtue of charity, notably a theological one. This makes forgiveness possible in a way that was foreign to Aristotle. Forgiveness does not presuppose justice as, quote, it requires that the offender already accepts as just the verdict of the law upon his action and behaves as one who acknowledges the justice of the appropriate punishment, hence the common root of penance and of punishment. Justice is characteristically administered by a judge, an impersonal authority representing the whole community, but forgiveness can only be extended by the offending party, end quote. McIntyre points out that this virtue radically redefines the conception of good, quote, for the community in which the good is achieved has to be one of reconciliation, end quote. This alters the conception of a telos to some predefined end that, with one movement, one can achieve despite a lifetime of wrongness. This sort of concept would have been completely foreign to Aristotle. Telos is both the goal and the life lived, and charity simply isn't a virtue to Aristotle. So we see the teleology of virtue diverging from Aristotle significantly. First, for Aristotle, a human good, or eudaimonia, can be frustrated by external misfortune. Second, it puts the movement towards the good inside a context that has a history, not just the polis. Recalling from uh, the chapter on Aristotle that no virtue was possible outside the polis. In the view of the medieval society, quote, the virtues are then those qualities which enable men to survive evils on their historical journey, end quote. Hence, patience and purity being virtues to the medieval ethicists, whereas Aristotle had no notion of them. Quote, purity is crucially important because the medieval world is one which recognizes how easily any grasp of the notion of a supreme good may be lost by worldly distraction. Patience, too, is crucial because it is the virtue of endurance in the face of evil, uh, end quote. He wraps, by, he wraps up by concluding that strict Aristotelianism was rare in the medieval era, making Aquinas a, a very deviant thinker. Rather, we should consider medieval ethics to be a unique achievement in their linking of Aristotle's ethics with a biblical historical perspective rather than simply being Aristotelian ipso facto. And that's about how he wraps up with that. Yeah, so I found it interesting, which is a comment that required a lot of thought um, and is very mm. insightful, um, if I do quite, say so myself. Quite. I did find, we were talking a little bit on the on the pre-show about the Stoicism portion of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen, I think you had some thoughts on that. Right. So I am very impressed with McIntyre setting up Stoicism as a response to moral developments, um, especially a dismantling of virtues, because if he's correct, then the resurgence that at the very least I've seen, um, I'm not sure about the two of you, but I, I have several friends, several coworkers who are very interested in Stoicism, and that's kind of coming back around. There's a sort of neo-Stoicism that's coming about. There's this one kind of combination business writer and philosopher who, from what I've heard, seems fairly legit, um, Ryan Holiday, who is very much advocating for a return to Stoicism. He has a couple of books, one of which is uh, The Ego is the Enemy. This sort of return to Stoicism, if McIntyre is correct, really does... um, speak to his favor if a return to stoicism is an indicator that virtue itself is becoming more difficult to obtain is more difficult we are lacking a unified set of virtues to practice and therefore we are kind of retreating internally to a more internal goodness that we can pursue than mcintyre's spot on about our current situation um, so the fact that his philosophy has predictive power, I'm very impressed with. Yeah, I thought that his section on virtue um, 
with page 169 where he kind of says that stoicism abandons any notion of uh, telos. And then he goes on to talk about what exactly, where, it basically explains where stoicism finds meaning and the, and virtue. And his description sounded extremely American. Like I read that and I'm like, and I thought that, that sounded like the um, system of morals that have kind of been built up through a patchwork in America. Like our goodness comes from the individual and it needs the individual, to, it means the individual needs to pursue goodness in every one situation and just do the best they can there. And it's kind of more absolute, looking for like more absolute values and less community oriented. So I think that that's just kind of another tie-in of how Stoicism is being reflected in our modern culture. McIntyre does put Stoicism as a, uh, I forget, I didn't write it down, unfortunately, but a kind of permanent fallback position that the West can always go back to. It's kind of mm. baked into our culture. And to an extent, I, I like Stoicism. I think that there's a lot to be said about it. I, I think it's practice of understanding that you cannot, that you can't control the universe, but you can control how you, how you react to that. I think that's a very laudable claim, but I think he is spot on um, in his diagnosis with this. And I think his critiques of Stoicism are also quite um, accurate. Yeah, I mean, if if your if your choices of you know modes of behavior is something like hedonism or nihilism or stoicism, you go with stoicism every time just because it's the the least of those evils. But speaking particularly to modern society and let's say the cutting edge of it, so I'm thinking um, very techy. I'm thinking Silicon Valley. I'm thinking um, you know the entrepreneurial spirit there seems to be kind of a resonance or a, some kind of strange um, hypermodern synthesis that happens because you mentioned Ryan Holiday, but there are also even those ads that you'll get on Facebook all the time where it's like, you know, the self-made man taking control. I made $3 million last month and you can too. Just read my book. And and also weird neo paganism, spirituality of um, big tech in many ways. I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with this, but I, I think McIntyre pointing out stoicism as one of the fallbacks of a society of people who don't have the ability to live with other people and act out the virtues. And instead, goodness has to become simplified because you don't have people to hold you accountable. You don't have people to do good and build community with. And so when he's talking about virtue being just sort of doing the right thing and enduring life, it becomes a binary switch that you just get to kind of flip and decide that you're doing good as opposed to having to demonstrate it. And so that's not to say that there's not value in Stoic thought, but that it's one of those philosophies, I think, that can be appropriated to sort of be very therapeutic in a, in a way. I think Sam brought up a very good point in saying that this is a very individualist uh, ethical system. And so very in keeping with kind of the American um, ideal of individualism. It, it, and so it strikes me as kind of what you said, it's the best that an individualist culture can do. Uh, once they lose the conception of the common good, this is about the best they got. And so, and so we, I guess on the one hand, we should be somewhat thankful that at the very least, the the more individualist, still somewhat virtuous ethical system of stoicism is still kind of surviving and providing a 
reasonably all right fall, uh, fallback ethical system, but still it's it's an indicator that there is an unhealthy uh, element within the ethical systems of the society that falls back to stoicism. It's still an indicator of something bad. Now for one kind of change the subject, there was a, maybe this is a critique that I had, and I've kind of had it with McIntyre's representation of Aristotle for a while. 174, when he's talking about I guess how Aristotle like missed the virtue of charity and he didn't have that because he didn't have like Christ and the Christ figure and what that means for ethics. And McIntyre seemed to play this off as like it's a um it's an absence that's that means that Aristotle is missing this crucial part, but we can still take his word for it. And I guess my response to that would be that the virtue of charity and the condition or you know, the condition of forgiveness and what that means is kind of everything for Christianity. And so I guess how can McIntyre say that that absence is only minor? And this is kind of a broader broader question about maybe the acceptance of Aristotle for a Christian, me being not Catholic. How can you accept Aristotle when he's missing such a foundational virtue for um, the, the, the virtue that's so vital for Christianity? I get there's a way around that, but what is that way around it? I, I think... For for the record, I believe uh, McIntyre was still writing this before he converted to Catholicism. He was. So, he was a Marxist atheist. So I, I think it was part of this project that eventually did lead him to Catholicism. That said, I think he's just more noting, well, Aristotle didn't have this, and so we shouldn't kind of he's kind of hedging himself from getting accusations of, well, medieval philosophy wasn't Aristotle, Aristotle lacked X, Y, and Z. He's like, Yeah, I, I know. But it's more their system, their project was very similar to his. They just had an additional set of virtues. And noting that the addition of any virtue that is fundamentally unique from a previous set of virtues will also radically alter the virtues to which it's being added. So if we if we found a new virtue, I don't know, let's say, as always, we'll go back to your American cults. Let's say we added the virtue of wokeness. Um, or like well, equality, just the equality of the virtue. Yeah, oh yeah, and I mean to a extent, like yeah, let's let, let's run with that. Like then the the virtues of honesty or justice or charity would fundamentally be changed because they have to incorporate the uh, the virtue of equality. And I think McIntyre is wanting to discuss in this chapter how the addition of other virtues that simply weren't around with Aristotle or at least hadn't been discussed or wasn't, wasn't in his mind, how they fundamentally altered the entire set of virtues. The other thing that I would say is um, sort of, and this is in particular response to the question of, you know, as a non-Catholic, how do I, or as Sam, Sam as a non-Catholic, me as a Catholic, how do we, approach Aristotle then if he seems to be missing this forgiveness thing, which is essential for Christianity and charity. The first answer is you obviously don't go straight to Aristotle. You go to Aristotle through uh, Aquinas and Thomism in general. The second answer, I actually had this thought when we were talking about the Stoicism portion and how it's kind of like a binary, you either have it or you don't type thing, and that's the focus, and there's no sort of like, okay, what's next question with Stoicism, whereas with teleological systems like Aristotle's, like Thomas Aquinas's, there's an ongoing path and you don't get to just kind of flip a switch and then call yourself good on it. And if Aristotle lacks charity, something like Calvin or Luther, or at least what their denominations have become, I think, 
is in part sort of the exact opposite, like just went to the other extreme. And you, it's just the forgiveness. It's just the sin. And you flip that switch and then you're good. And then you spend the rest of your life worrying about if you're actually saved and, you know, reconvert like six times at summer camps. <laughs> Which that would actually provide some explanatory power why Luther was so anti-Aristotle was he saw Aristotle's project as well be, becoming a good person through works instead of through through grace. So I suppose that would provide some explanatory power for why he was so anti-Aristotle. Yeah, for sure. Um, one other. Okay, so let's let's uh, Sam. Do you, do you have something? No, no, no. That was that was a good explanation. Yeah. So need to get to it through Aquinas, which. McIntyre is probably going to talk about that at some point. I hope so. Um, yeah, I mean, I think McIntyre did a good job in chapter 12 that we read last week, where he was like, Aristotle's great, he does a pretty good job, but then here are the three gaps that you need to fill in. And sort of what we got from this chapter in part to pull that through is that Christianity deals with the metaphysical biology of uh, of a teleological system, which is one of the gaps that Aristotle had. The other thing that I had a question about, and just the part that I found uh, very striking and Sophoclean was the uh, discussion of Thomas Beckett. And the the example, at least the way that I understood it, was just more or less saying Henry II and Thomas Beckett came into conflict. They both claimed certain uh, rights or that, or, or that something was just. But McIntyre's argument is that they both saw each other as legitimate sources of power. It's 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 uh, just another instance of the Sophoclean tragedy where you have two competing things that both have hold over you. And so Beckett is martyred for defying the king, but Henry has to, you know, crawl on his knees for 15 miles or whatever to beg forgiveness for it. I find it very romantic um, in a uh, Sophoclean way. Uh, but anyway, yeah, what did you guys think of that? Well, first, not to be overly nitpicky, but they definitely didn't see each other as having, or as, uh, what, what do you say about them having rights or something like that? Rights, uh, rights was the wrong word, uh, just that, that they had legitimate authority of some kind. Uh, yes, I think that that would be it. They were both legitimate sources of power to dispense justice and demand loyalty. Uh, yeah, I mean, McIntyre, anti-rights, we've already been over that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not yeah, anti-rights, was, rights as moral fictions or whatever. But Poor phrasing on my part. I'll, I'll let it slide this one time. You do have the right to be heard. Um. <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps simply it is just that I am heard. Mm, heard. Mm. 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 Uh, but yes, I, I think you are correct in that this is a very Sophoclean tragedy. And I, I found it interesting, his bringing back into the the discussion, the concept of roles that when mm. Beckett saw that he could not comply with a legitimate demand on his loyalty, he sought to accept the role of martyr. And I, I confess, I don't know the, the story behind Beckett and Henry II very well. So I, I do kind of question if really Beckett was just like, oh, well, I have to obey the king. I can't obey the king. So I'm just going to become a martyr and it's that simple. Like, I, I do wonder how much wrestling was done with that and how much uh, politicking was done between the two. But yeah, I I'm think- just imagining Beckett being like, ah, yes, I, I too am a source of legitimate authority, but let me be stabbed six times for defying the king. <laughs> this is indeed the only way that this could go. <laughs> <laughs> or like, or the, 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 the king ignore, like saying, ah, yes, I have done uh, an ill deed against the church. I will therefore crawl 15, 15 miles. It's like, well, 
also he probably was considering the fact that the Catholic Church has a ton of authority and without their blessing the people might riot or, or what have you. So I think this is a very romantic way of looking at it. But I don't stop being so cynical. Power <laughs> relations aren't real. It's a it's a that's a moral fiction, modern fiction. Mm, mm. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> yeah, medieval medieval Europe definitely was complete stranger to power dynamics and, and various politicking. Um <laughs> I mean that's a real existential question is uh i guess this answer is obvious but if you view things as primarily or at least heavily to do with power relations or even just some sort of crude version of real politic you go all machiavellian on it the virtues are just entirely fictitious yeah. no, that, that is true and if these two really did see each other as legitimate moral authorities and they had come across an impasse and this was about the best that both of them could do because if if you view if you view the other not only the other but also yourself as a legitimate moral authority that is a very real Sophoclean tragedy where there is no escape um, and therefore I guess you are forced to just accept the role of martyr or of penitent. I mean, as I recall, the story of Beckett was um, the king told him to do something or told all of the I'm frantically Wikipedia ing. Um, it was something, uh, okay, the king did something or other. Um, Beckett was excommunicating people. Um, and then the sort of apocryphal line is, um, will someone rid me of that meddlesome priest or something like that? And so he didn't like say, go kill Beckett. But then the king, like when the king says, I wish this would happen, people around him are all like, oh yeah, let's, let's make this happen. Um, anyway. I thought uh, McIntyre wrote that, something to the effect of like nobody was willing to do it. Um, and that eventually the king kind of had to go do it himself. Oh no, 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 no. It was, it, it was, uh, three other people who never mind them. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway. Interesting. Yeah. To quote Revan. Interesting. Interesting. Mm, yeah. That's deep, man. Mm. That's, that's deep. Yeah. Well, uh, before this, the secular power at the very least trembled. No one could be found who had the temerity to deliver the hostile judgments of the royal court to the archbishop. When finally Henry occasioned Beckett's death, he could not evade in the end the need to do penance, yada, 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 yada. So I, I guess I interpreted the no one could be found who had the temerity to deliver the hostile judgment. Um, I, I interpreted that as nobody had the balls to go kill him. No, no, I don't think the judgment was ever to kill him. It was just something stripping him of his archbishopship or something like that. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that probably wouldn't happen. Yeah, well, anyway, uh, so that's McIntyre chapter 13. Lucky, lucky 13. That was a good time, I guess, I say, having only read half of it. Better than the Athens chapter. It wasn't the worst chapter. It also was not the best chapter. It was chapter. better than the Athens one, and it was definitely better than the one that was in mostly Greek. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was... Oh, I think that was the Athens one, the one mostly in Greek. Oh, yeah, yeah. you're right. The Athens and then the Aristotle one was also mm-hmm. pretty dry. Yeah. yeah. This one was interesting. It, it seemed that he bounced back and forth between a, a, a lot of stuff, which I was talking with Sam about before the session, and Sam was like, eh, it seemed more straightforward. So it could also be that I was really tired when I was reading it, and so mm-hmm. my mind kept wandering and then landing on a new page. Yeah, mm-hmm. the it the I think the big thing was just the first honestly eight chapters were just dropping bombshell after bombshell and I was like oh my god mm-hmm. but then since then it's been kind of like uh this is a lot of history um quite true and he's building a case and he's doing it successfully but it's just a very long slow case yeah yep. it's a grind for sure yeah 
Well, let's get on to some more uh, fast, fast and furious news here. Uh, uh, Samuel, I believe that yes. you have an article for us. Well, first of all, you just used my full name, which may remove me of some some sense of anonymity. So, thanks for that. What else could Sam be? Uh, be? I don't think I've ever heard of any sort Samantha? of Samantha. Yeah, Samantha. Sam- that would be female. Samwise. You could be Samwise. I could Samwise have been, the brave, now, in fact. Now I'm Samuel. Oh, so I, I terrible. Anyway, <laughs> to go completely in the opposite direction of a very slow grind. I picked an article this week about the most exciting thing of our modern age, which is, of course, Beto O'Rourke. Um, it's, the article is titled The Myth of Beto O'Rourke by um, Edward Isaac Dovier, um, and it's in The Atlantic. I think that like over the last three weeks, out of all of our articles, like 80% of them have been from The Atlantic. Yep. So... I'd like to see the Pacific getting some love, because it is clearly the better of two oceans. It is, but is it the better of two news sources? I don't know what the... Maybe. Probably not. I Probably don't. not. But um, anyway, no, this article is interesting, both because it was... Um, well, first of all, because I didn't know much of this, stuff, this information about Beto and about kind of what he's doing in his campaign. It was also interesting because The Atlantic is a generally, like, center-left-leaning source, and I assume they would they would love Beto. And, I think uh, they'd like Beto over a lot of the other alternatives. I think they, I, I thought they would, but this article is pretty critical of him. And maybe not just necessarily critical, but it's a good analysis of exactly what he's doing and how it's just weird. So this is just kind of some political news, not really anything philosophical. But basically, he's fundraising at record paces right now. And his goal is be, has been to beat Bernie Sanders' 24-hour fundraising total, which Sanders few weeks ago, raised $5.9 million in 24 hours. And on March 14th, um, Beto beat him, or he, he raised uh, $6.1 million. So looks like he's doing really well. I mean, that's, that's a record of any political campaign of all time. But Sanders did his record without asking for any donations whatsoever. I mean, basically, he didn't ask for direct donations, didn't beg for money. He basically just like announced his campaign, said he's running, you know, Bernie 2020, and that rolled in the 5.9 million. Uh, Beto had to basically demand it on multiple occasions. He had his campaign releasing statements like, quote, Beto is playing catch up to the other cam- candidates with more campaign funds. And, quote, we will be heavily outspent. Basically just trying to prompt people to donate more so that they can spend more money um, because that correlates with winning in some way. And then the author goes into talking about how Beto values myth. And he, well, first of all, named his son Ulysses. So there's one indication of that. What a pretentious <laughs> bastard on this point. Um, I actually, and, 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 and this is going to show my own pretentious bastardliness, um, but when it said Ulysses, I assumed it was talking about Ulysses as in the James Joyce modernist novel and not uh, the, uh, um, the the Odyssey, which was... No, it's the Odyssey. I know, I know. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so like, I even had a snide comment about dooming this poor child Ulysses to a life of uh, incredibly fragmented stream of thought thinking and onomatopoeia. Um, but it doesn't work because it's not about the James Joyce novel. And the other thing on this is that I, I too, want to name um, one of my future children after uh, a character in um, a story and probably one that I write. But my uh, wife will um, – will she let me? Um, no, she won't. So why should Beto get to? Wow. This is clearly a class thing because he's a billionaire and he can name his kids after book characters. Um, that's all. 
I mean, the thing is that I, I'm also looking at naming my child after a, a Greek hero. Um, I'm currently looking at Agamemnon. Yes! <laughs> yes. I, I so, want Anselm for mine. That followed by Petro, Petrophilus is next. But, so. What? Petro- Petrocles? No, Patroclus. There's somebody in the Are audience. you talking about Achilles, uh, his, his boy toy? No, I, I think I'm talking about an archer. Oh, 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 that guy, that guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are probably better, better people than Patroclus. Yeah, I mean, he basically runs out there and gets killed. Anyway, Beto, like Smith, um, even more than we do, named his kid after it, versus we are probably going to be unsuccessful. He basically is uh, trying to start this huge grassroots movement, drawing large crowds, speaking really sincerely, always from his heart. And he's wrapped up this entire ethos in this. Unfortunately, it's not really, he's not able to really apply it. Basically, his numbers are very fuzzy. So on his El Paso kickoff day, he did three um, rallies in one day across Texas, which um, that's just insane. But on his first rally in his hometown of El Paso, the police estimated that there were about one to 2,000 people who came out. His campaign said 6,000 came out. Later, at midnight on that day, on the steps of the state capitol in Austin, the mayor said that roughly 6,000 came out, which was impressive. The campaign said 14,000 came out. And the campaign's refusing to respond about these discrepancies. So there's a huge discrepancy in the numbers that are actually happening versus what um, he's saying are happening. He's also falling far short of what we're seeing at Kamala Harris or, um, or Bernie's rallies. So there's there's that fact, but he's drawing a lot more um, a lot more energy from his rallies. He was introduced as the man, not the myth, but the legend, um, to a crowd waving his standard Viva Bernie sign or Viva, Viva Beto, excuse me, uh, Viva Beto signs. The best sign was Beto is Christ or Beto is our Christ. Or I was about to talk. Yes, exactly. Is that there were some other great signs that were handmade, including Beto is our Christ. And make America Beto again. Um, whatever that mean means. Make America Beto again. Beto's never. <laughs> like, he's never been president or anything. Or he's ever, has America been Beto before? I don't know. He's pretty like his whole ethos is he's new and exciting and all that and listening to people. And I don't I don't know when America's ever been like that before. So shouldn't it just be Make America Beto? Just. I mean, I don't necessarily agree, but at least be grammatically correct, people. Hey, once a meme is established, you have to follow in the mimetic pattern. You don't really have a choice to deviate. Um, the mm-hmm. but the the Trump or the uh, crowd size thing is so Trumpy. I just yeah. want to know how big Beto's hands are now. But the other great thing, uh, and 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 I'm really sh- uh, shoehorning in this reference here, um, but I say it at, at every time that I can. Um, but the article talks about how. Uh, O'Rourke uh, doing what Ivanka Trump uh, says to do in her 2017 book, which is, quote, cultivating authenticity is essential to creating strong bonds with people, end quote. Yeah. Um, and so that's his whole thing is I'm, I'm hyper authentic and whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but um, I think personally that if we just all followed the actually incredibly stoic advice of First Lady Melania Trump and uh, – we should just all go and be best. Just be best. Be best. On a, on a note similar to that, except quoting a far more profound and wonderful thinker. Who? What? Who? <laughs> does remind me of David Foster Wallace's... No! <laughs> this does remind me of David Foster Wallace's essay on McCain. 
uh, who back in 2000 with his um, primary run was, it's odd they're following somewhat of a similar track. McCain was very much about authenticity, which was pretty much DFW's entire project. Uh, was authenticity mm. uh, about getting the younger crowd to commit to something outside of themselves, to be patriotic again, to love their country again. And mm. so even though comparatively speaking, McCain was completely outweighed by Bush in both funding and in uh, support, uh, just like by the number of people that show up at rallies and whatnot, McCain would have uh, seemingly a lot more um, devoted fans, a lot more interested fans um, who would seem to kind of be more genuinely buying his message. And it seems that O'Rourke is following a similar model. Whether or not he's sincere about it is certainly up for grabs. And I don't think any, any of us would know for sure. But it does seem that he is following that model, which I would suspect David Foster Wallace would at least somewhat nod in approval for, you know, whether or not it's authentic I, up for grabs. But. Just, Prima facie, I'm going to disagree heartily. I don't think McCain's project was was consciously myth making, uh, which O'Rourke's is. Go on, I'm I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, well, I, I so M- McCain, uh, at, at least from that article, which I've I've read at least most of, um, like everything that you said about uh, McCain is um, authentic, but I wouldn't describe any of it as consciously myth-making like he 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 wasn't ever turning himself into a mythical figure like you wouldn't see mccain is our christ at a rally ever whereas beto's project is trying to be authentic because that's what everyone has to be now apparently where are the inauthentic people uh make make america inauthentic again Uh, Uh, postmodernism movement mm -hmm. kind of starting to take effect into extreme irony politics but no, no that extreme irony is postmodernism. Extreme authenticity is post postmodernism. What really? Yeah, but okay. But yeah, what if? I, but, but what if the irony is um, authentic? Um, no, that's still that's still a, a tension in binary. So that would be, or it, it, that's a dissolution in binary. So that'd be very postmodern. Post postmodernism seeks to uh, a return to authenticity. I have sure. Um, anyway, my my point was just uh, uh, DF Dub's uh, description of. McCain seems very different from at, at least the Beto presented in this article. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was like. What the article is kind of talking about is how Beto's just hit this weird niche where he can do no wrong. Like when he did those three rallies in a day, and by the end his voice was falling apart and it was hoarse. And people are saying it's a proof of his passion and how much he's throwing into the race. Versus when the same thing happened to Elizabeth Warris when she was doing a weekend Warris? tour. Uh, sorry, Warren. Elizabeth Warren. Uh, when the same thing happened to Elizabeth Warren as she was doing a weekend tour, um, everybody criticized her as it was showing her age. Um, or he speaks without speaking notes and boldly without a podium when every single other candidate memorizes their speeches and speaks without a major podium. So um, you're saying all these things, but have you considered how much Beto O'Rourke jumps on uh, counters and tables? Because that's kind of ha- the point that, that sold me so far. Yeah, that that's what got me. It got, well, that and how he's just listening to everyone. And before he announced his campaign, he went on an entire tour of the country just to listen. Almost like he didn't have a platform as he was coming into the primary race for the president of the United States. Yeah, I, I mean, because your normal presidential candidate would stand on either counters or tables, but not both. <laughs> but Beto is just, you know, his total... 
lack of um, discrimination, his very open-mindedness. I even think that he uh, stood on a chair once too, and maybe even a stool. Like this man just stands on it. He, all. Didn't, he didn't go stool, but like he's he's pretty close. We can only ask uh, for so much he, with I, our Christ. I, his discrimination <laughs> against stools—that's a little concerning, you know. I I think that's an indicator against his diversity and inclusion standard. I think Kamala Harris would stand on a stool. So, you mm. know, you know, yeah. I mm. yeah, uh, I I think that's one of her campaign promises. Um, but stand anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah, let's move on to uh, equally uh, <laughs> serious topics. Uh, Stephen, I, I believe you have an article for us. <laughs> yes, we just alienate half our listeners. <laughs> Pro- probably, probably. Uh, I, I will say that okay. that is, is somewhat disappointing hearing that perhaps O'Rourke really isn't attempting to return to an actual authenticity, but is still kind of stuck in the fake authenticity. That, if you uh, want to see relatively real authenticity, uh, Pete Buttigieg is your closest thing in, in in my opinion so far he's he's generating stir i'm impressed he is yeah he, he actually came to um northeastern university where i work oh, is he the in indiana the person yep. governor yep. i think mm-hmm. okay yep. yeah I, I have heard a little bit about him mm. okay article. i'll check him out go in any case uh, um my article is by rod dreher uh who is uh a I think I forget if he actually is the main author content maker of the American conservative or the American conservative, or it's just a writer. But in any case, uh, Roger, you're writing on Jordan Peterson. Now Jordan Peterson isn't someone I'm very familiar with. Uh, I I've heard a lot of talk around him for the most part. What I've heard is very um, divided. Either people are rapidly for him or rapidly against him. And for the most part, everything I've, read about him or, or read um of him so like whatever he says or whatever has struck me as fairly reasonable nothing too crazy going on um and rod dreyer uh in discussing him uh, takes a scene out of his appearance at liberty university uh, where a young man rushes the stage and kind of crying and very clearly disturbed and saying that he is quote unwell end quote and both peterson and david nassar uh, who's one of the administrators of Liberty University and also a pastor handled the situation and at least in a, a surprisingly decent way that like they didn't have him just immediately rush off stage. Um, and it, it, it seemed that it was at least somewhat tastefully done. Um, and he, he uses this kind of as a launching point to discuss kind of how Peterson goes about or what, why people are so fascinated with Jordan Peterson um, and how he is attempting to take their lives in a little bit more with, with more weight. Um, and he kind of, with this, uh, launches into why people are liking him. Um, and has, has kind of a list of different reasons why people like him. Um, uh, first being people are longing to hear true and weighty words. Uh, so a, a, finally a speaker who is not ironical, who is not saying that, uh, or saying everything with kind of a, a twist at the end to show that they're not really all that sincere. Uh, something, something David Foster Wallace, that people need both compassion and firmness. And that's one of the things that he was most struck by with Peterson was that he was all, he's always sympathetic whenever he hears people, but he is not weak about it. He will listen and then he will say, okay, we'll go take control of your life. Yes, it's clear that you are suffering, but he's not about to say, and therefore wallowing your suffering. He will say, well, it's clear that you're suffering now, go do something about it. Um, so it's not this quote unquote flaccid empathy that pervades our culture, end quote. Um, 
he he resents this idea of creating victimhood classes uh, and and quote feeding them a narrative of rights and re, uh, resentment. Rather, he seeks to encourage struggling young people and to give them courage. End quote. Um, and then uh, one last one. Uh, he he knows that people are just inspired by courage and a genuine openness to reality. That he he isn't afraid. And I, I hesitate to say he isn't afraid to speak his mind because people also said that about Trump and. That can also be code for he is in general a douchebag who doesn't care who he hurts. But there does seem to be something very authentic about him in that he he wishes to say something honest and true, but not in a mean-spirited sort of way. Although I think you could probably debate that latter point. And it, it, I'm, I'm becoming more intrigued, not necessarily by what people like about him, but also what people hate about him. Because whenever he's brought up, again people really like him or really hate him. And I, I guess I'm, I'm intrigued by the discussion of why people don't like him. Uh, and one of the, the amusing links uh, was uh, Alvin Plantinga's uh, quote unquote, savagely convicting elites definition of a fundamentalist, uh, which I'll go ahead and quote and then we'll, we can launch into a bit of discussion. So here's Plantinga's on the definition of fundamentalist. Well, this is a quote from Warranted Christian Belief. We must first look into this, the use of this term fundamentalist. One of the more con common contemporary academic use of the term is a term of abuse or disappropriation, rather like son of a bitch, or more exactly, son of a bitch, all one word, or perhaps still more exactly, at least according to those authorities who look to the Old West as, a normat as normative on matters of pronunciation, some bitch. When the term is used in this way, no definition of it is ordinarily given. If you call someone a some bitch, would you feel obligated first to define the term? Still, there's a bit more to the meaning of fundamentalists in this widely current use. It isn't simply a term of abuse. In addition to its emotive force, it does have some cognitive content and ordinarily denotes relatively conservative theological views. That makes it more like stupid some bitch or maybe fascist some bitch than some bitch simpliciter. It isn't exactly like that term either. However, because its cognitive content can expand and contract on demand, its content seems to depend on who is using it. In the mouths of certain liberal theologians, for example, it tends to denote any who accept traditional, traditional Christianity, including Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, and Barth. And in the mouth of devout secularists like Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett, it tends to denote anyone who believes there's such a person as God. The explanation is that the term has a certain indexical element. Its cognitive content is given by the phrase considerably to the right, theologically speaking, of me and my enlightened friends. The full meaning of the term, therefore, in this use, can be given by something like, quote, stupid some bitch whose theological opinions are considerably to the right of mine, end quote. And so it seems that everyone's view of Jordan Peterson is that stupid some bitch whose theological opinions are considerably to the right of mine. I didn't realize that Planiga was so savage. That's amazing. Oh, he, if, if his last book, um, uh, Religion, Science, Where the Conflict Really Lies, uh, I forget, I, that's not the exact title, but holy cow, so many one-liners. He has an entire chapter dedicated to Dawkins and whole. That's cow. awesome. I might need to look him up, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's great. I, I remember several times, like, legitimately, not non-ironically laughing quite quite extensively whenever I re read one. Because we can't laugh ironically. That would be bad. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. Reject postmodernism. Read David Foster. <laughs> uh, no, I think the Jordan Peterson phenomenon is fascinating. And, I mean, one thing that came out of the beginning of this article that I was interested in is how he the author talked about... Um, 
Jordan Peterson ministering to the young man. Um, Jordan Peterson's not a Christian, isn't he? I mean, it, no, I, I thought no, he was. No, he's yeah. not a Christian. And what has bothered me about him is how, like, the Christian community, particularly, like, the kind of... Now, granted, I, I, I like him. I think that he is usually pretty correct in his premises. But it's interesting to me that, like, the Christian kind of more casual right of center um, evangelical movement has really taken him up as this great thinker when he's not articulating any new or innovative positions. He's just repeating things that have been true for or at least philosophical ideas that have been in existence for a while and repeating these counters to more progressive theologies that are appealing to people. And I think that's dangerous to pick up figure just because you like his I, I I don't know. Like I guess I guess he's like lacking the substance that's needed to make those those positions actually true and make cohesive sense. Those people are stupid some bitches whose theological opinions are considerably to the right of ours. Um, I, yeah, maybe. Sorry, that's was I was I just um, falling into that? Yeah, trap? Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, so I, I I think at least partially with Peterson, he's I mean he's he's an Overton window shifter. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas these ideas may have existed. Um, and depending on what idea you're talking about, there's a lot of variation and gradations in what he actually talks about. But he he is the f- one of the first, at least recently, successful intellectual or pseudo intellectual um, salesman is is harsher than I mean um, spokesperson for yep. a uh, sort of vaguely center right uh, everyday philosophy. Um, and there just hasn't been that for a while, at least not in my memory. Um, yeah, and a counter to that is that, I mean, like, or at least a counter to my original view is that I think that he's good and that he's forcing people to actually think of their ideas and opinions in a little bit more holistic of a light. Instead of just policy positions to beat, to, to beat the libs, now it's actually, okay, here's a, co- here's, here's a little bit of a cohesive philosophy that it can fit into. Yeah, and one part of the article... Um, that I found particularly salient, I think. It was talking about the difference between Peterson and pastors in particular, um, and why why Peterson has um, is evidently compelling. Um, that's not a debatable subject, just given the crowds he gathers. Why, why he is compelling and pastors are not. Um, and there's several sub-points on that, um, including uh, that, you know, that the pastors are trying their primary thing is is kind of to sell you something, which is salvation, um, in a, at least cynically, uh, you know, w- with all the best intentions. Um, but it's the same thing like worship music, where it's it emotionally manipulates you to try and get you to this hump that they very the pastors very legitimately believe is something that you need to get over or get through to you know for for your own good. But Peterson isn't selling something in that same sense, and uh, Dreher mentions the Bible series that Peterson does, which takes sort of a Jungian psychological approach to various Bible stories. And I've listened to one or two, and they're they're very interesting, and they've, and they've added a lot of depth, I would say, to the stories that I've listened to them on. Um, and it's because, and this actually ties back to the Stoicism on-off switch, and my opinion that Protestants, but in particular evangelicals, tend to hyper-focus on the moment of salvation to the exclusion and detriment of everything else is that when you read the entire Bible and the only concept that's beating in the back of your brain is salvation, 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 that, you know, 
get saved, turn to Christ, then you miss a lot of the extended content and helpful uh, life stories and, and tips that a more holistic reading, that a reading, you know, looking through virtues, looking for, through teleology, through community. And that's the type of stuff that Peterson illuminates um, that is just missing when your entire beat is narrow. Interesting. And because of the, and he does that because he really doesn't care and isn't reading it with that in existence at all. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I, I, could, I could buy that. Which it, it's still, it's somewhat concerning. I, Sam, I, I really do echo with your sentiments on the idea that a lot of people kind of take Peterson and run with him just because he has a more intellectual approach to the thing that they already believe. And I think there you do find uh, the the name of the article. I don't think I mentioned it is um, what Jordan Peterson's uh, as a religious Rorschach uh, test, or Jordan Peterson's religious Rorschach. Um, in that people kind of look at him, they see him per- providing a more articulate worldview that matches roughly with theirs, and so they just kind of say, "Therefore, I'm right because this very smart man is now backing me up." And I I think there is something. We- concerning about that just given that they're not my, my fear is that they're not taking that holistic approach they're not listening to everything and seeing that it is incorporated in his overall framework they're just taking the little bits and pieces that they agree with and i think that's the somewhat risky part that gives me some pause for the concern. immediate flip side of that that's coin, I, though is it's mm-hmm. yes it's concerning that these people may just be adopting peterson whole scale because he vaguely agrees with what they already believe but it's equally concerning uh, the failure of everyone who, you know, ostensibly these people already listen to to hold them or to offer them any kind of next level to the point like Peterson is popular because other people have failed to hold their attention. And that's that's part of the that's a good point. I, I'm intrigued to see where where the Jordan Peterson phenomenon goes. It, he, so far, he's able to he's been able to keep himself in a relatively I say positive light in that he has yet to be the center of any massive scandal other than saying what some more liberal leaning people will accuse of being problematic or what have you, which incidentally, I hate that word, but um, I, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that he'll be able to stay above that. And I'm intrigued to see if he's going to kind of slowly fade away from the public view or if he will become bigger, if this phenomenon will become bigger and bigger as more and more people kind of realize that his, return to kind of more weighty matters uh it it does work speaking of being intrigued uh here for my article um seamlessly transitioning away uh is a thing that you probably have never heard of and it was called reddit place and this is from a website that i don't really know it's called pseudoscript.com um and it's just a short oral history um which i've grown to appreciate uh, the concept of of oral history, in particular, just sort of internet phenomenon and vid- and video game creation in particular. But this one is about a thing called Reddit Place, which happened oh, probably early 2010s, um, and it was this Reddit thing where you could there was a giant blank canvas, and anyone could log on with their Reddit account, and every five minutes you could place one pixel of any color you want anywhere on this giant canvas, and everyone started doing it and just putting random bits of colored dots. And it was just, you know, all sorts of random bits. They weren't drawing anything. But then what happened over time 
is people started coordinating and they started getting on Discord. They started getting on different chat sites. They mapped out a, 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 a grid of the canvas and started planning and coordinating with hundreds of people that they knew and didn't know so that they could actually make drawings. And in the end, it produced this amazing canvas with all these different uh, references and flags and colors. And what this article that I uh, chose and does is sort of just like runs through a dramatized edition of it. And there's like different actors. There are the creators who are determined to create. There are there is uh, you know the the blue team which just tries to cover the entire thing in blue starting from one corner and then there's the green team that you know appears and there's other people that are drawing pokemon and people that are drawing flags and just all this great amazing stuff uh um creation out of nothing ex nihilo and one important thing to note is that it only happened over 72 hours so this organizing like you mentioned it was over time but at least as, as i read it it happened pretty quickly like people like there were there were there was a short period of time where it was just kind of random you know, dots everywhere, and then people instantly organized and started designing things. Yeah, it's it's an amazing example, and you can watch time lapses of the canvas as it develops. And this it's this just this stunning evolution, um, emergent order from nothing, where no order need to need exist to just make incredibly complicated and um, amazing drawings. And I'm just going to read a short portion from it. The one turning point that the article talks about is what's called the void, which was a whole bunch of people who started just making a black hole from the center, just black pixels and blotting out everything and threatening to take over the whole uh, canvas. Um, and it reads as follows, a quote, enter the void. They started on 4chan, Reddit's mangled redheaded stepbrother. It wasn't long before the pranksters on the internet, most notorious image board took notice of what was happening on Reddit. It was too good an opportunity for them to pass up. And so they turned to the color closest to their heart, black. They became the void. Like a tear slowly spreading across the canvas, black pixels started emerging near the center of place. At first, other factions tried to form an alliance with them, foolishly assuming that diplomacy would work. But they failed, because the void was different. The void was no protector. Unlike the factions, it professed no loyalty to art. Followers of the void championed its destructive egalitarianism, chanting only that the void will consume. They took no sides. They only wanted to paint the world black. This was exactly the kick in the ass that place needed. While creators had been busy fighting each other and protectors still measured themselves by the extent of canvas they controlled, a new threat, a real threat, had emerged under their nose. Against the face of extinction, they banded together to fight the Void and save their art. But the Void was not easy to vanquish because the place needed it. It needed destruction so that art new art, better art, would emerge from the ashes. Without the void, there was no force to clean up the old art. End quote. Um, anyway, I, I enjoyed this immensely, and I just wanted to share it with you guys. I remember when you sent this to me a couple, it was probably a couple years ago, and it is such an entertaining article to read. And then watch like, time lapses of individual parts of place as it developed over the 72 hours. Really funny and interesting. The time lapses were absolutely stunning. The, the amount of order that came about in 72 hours uh, is certainly remarkable and is is a testament to as weird as the internet can get sometimes, it can come up with some absolutely lovely the, stuff. The peak of the article is talking about sort of this unifying project that was undertaken to combat Void, and it was an American flag just going across the side. Very nice. Yeah, and on that relatively feel-good moment, I don't know how we got here with such optimism. Um, 
Stephen, that is Raging? very rare for us. It is rare. Uh, Stephen, I believe you have the rant. Um, don't don't drag us down here. I well, unfortunately, this isn't one of my positive rants. So unfortunately, I'm gonna. Uh, so brace yourselves, audience. This one's rough. Uh, it's actually not too bad. Uh, but this uh, this Friday there was uh, there was another article that came out. It was rather short. It was just more of a news announcement that Google has canned its AI board. Um, so in essence, it had convened a council of various thinkers and experts around artificial intelligence and ethics in order to create a more holistic discussion around AI and the various implications. And there was a response, uh, an internal response over the inclusion of two of the eight members, one of them being uh, a more conservative CEO and the other being uh, another CEO of a uh, a drone uh, manufacturing company, I believe, or a a drone company of some kind. And the eventually the internal backlash of the inclusion of these two people uh, grew to the point such that their uh, uh, the, the entire council just kind of fell apart. Um, they, they, they canned it and went back to the drawing board as it were. And I think you can, there, there's certainly a discussion around that of where, where should the line be such that a, a worldview is not acceptable and we can't accept this worldview in our, you know, in our ethics council. I mean, for example, we wouldn't want a Nazi in the ethics council, but how do we feel about somebody of this particular political spectrum or what have you? And I think that that's a perfectly um, good discussion. That's not what I'm ranting about. But the, the thing that really got me was one of my coworkers, we were all having lunch and one of my coworkers asked me about that. And I saw, oh yeah, well, I, I read about that. And one had been accused of transphobia and one had been accused accused of just being part of the drone industry. And I, I mainly concentrate on the latter. And I said, well, we do want to have an intelligent discussion around the implications of AI and drones and kind of what better person to do so than somebody who is involved in the drone industry. And certainly maybe we could have an ethicist who is a little bit more impartial and isn't the CEO of a giant drone company. And I think there's definitely something to be said that. But kind of the moment I even started defending that, immediately the whole room kind of a, a silence fell upon the whole room, and you, it was just very clear that this that this idea was not a welcome one. And all of a sudden, I began remembering that in these sort of ethical discussions, especially in the tech field, um, it it just becomes very dangerous to even defend um, the inclusion of more conservative. Uh, ideas um, as part of a holistic discussion. And to be fair, one or two co-workers kind of intervened for me. I was like, yeah, no, I think that that would be a valuable talking point, even if you don't agree. Uh, but several of my co-workers were shooting daggers uh, at me, which the funny thing is most of the time, I, I really enjoyed these co-workers. These are good co-workers who are decent people. But the moment you get on stuff like this, it just, it, 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 a switch is thrown. Um, and I think it's just, it's somewhat sad uh, to see very decent and good people just kind of shut down these sort of important conversations that need to take place, especially with something as important as AI ethics. Uh, so the, once again, the hobbling of ethical conversations. Uh, in the Ideology is, is depressing. a hell of a drug. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it is the true, true. Well, that is actually related very tangentially to my rant about ideology and particularly ego. Brevin, do you mind if I go? All right. I, just, I realized that you don't really cue that. Um, go, go. I'm just going for it, <clears throat> asserting my will. Um, anyway, this is a very short rant, and it's something that I was thinking about just today, and I want to do more research into it, is, you know, the, the American higher education system 
is kind of on the precipice of change. I mean, it's it's gotten to the point where it's an unsustainable system with the combination of student debt and questions about the value of degrees on the marketplace and the changing, um, I guess, just, just job market in general. Um, and another aspect that I've really noticed is harming it are um, academic egos and their impact on students. This isn't targeted towards any one side. I think it happens on both sides, where you have college campuses that are extremely polarized um, politically. And it gets to the point where professors, from my observations as an undergraduate student, and professors I know and really respect, are unwilling to talk to other professors who I know and respect just because they disagree with their politics. And therefore, those people are becoming villainized in every action they do. And it's really shutting down opportunities for students, where if they're being advised by one professor, they're pushed away from working with other professors who may be competent, but you're never going to know it because all you're told is that they're incompetent and believe X, Y, and Z. So I guess this is something I want to do more research into, is whether that sort of polarization on the faculty level is actually affecting students. But my hunch is that it really is. My hunch is that it's go- it, that it is affecting students and maybe even it, it worsening the atmosphere that is present on campuses. And if that is the case, I think it should be the... Re- I mean, again, this is a rant, so this is my opinion here. Um, but I, I think that professors should take the initiative to step forward and model that for students instead of furthering those... Um, divides. It's, it's particularly a pity because the the academic institution strikes me as being uniquely placed to be a bastion against this sort of tribalism yes. that these sort of these professors who could very wildly disagree but they're still in a place where the cultivation of ideas is rated as the most important thing that this is why you are there to cultivate ideas and so it is a particular mm-hmm. tragedy um to see this bastion start to fail. Yeah, I mean, it has been failing for a while in that respect. And and like, I don't think that there's any question. I mean, my article last week talked a lot about this, of how universities are, by and large, very, very left-leaning. But this seems to be something different because it permeates, it's an issue that permeates both sides. And I don't think either side can necessarily take the blame for it, but also neither side can just point the blame entirely on the other side. Speaking so, of sides, do you know what really sucks? And this is my rant. Uh, being on the different sides of time zones. Time zones are an abomination um, because they make it so that when I'm having a very late evening, um, it can be a very early evening all the way on the other side of the United States. And I don't get to <laughs> hang out with my friends as long as I would like to when we're playing games on the internet. Um, and I re- and like, it's just, I don't even know why time zones were ever invented. Um, like, like, why can't it just be day everywhere at the same time and then night everywhere at, at the same time too? But then we invented time systems and shifted the sun so we would match up with it. Like, it was just the the, the the stupidest decision ever. And I don't think I will ever forgive President Obama um, for inventing them. So, Revan, you um, sheep. It was before Obama. <laughs> okay, it, this, the, the time zones were caused by the government when NASA sent a satellite up in. The 50s. That's a myth. That's a myth. Was, it, no, no, no. Wait, no. They didn't say that. They realized the Earth was flat, and they realized they had to, they had to create time zones in order to create the illusion that the Earth was round, so that therefore we wouldn't believe the biblical narrative and uh, know that they can't control us. Okay. Yes, 
But you know, we would have been uniquely equipped to deal with this sort of clear falsehood if it hadn't been spreading chemtrails all over the place and, and creating right. our minds to believe this. Not well, see, but the weird thing is, is that the chemtrails only work with vaccines uh, that, that that get put in you. So, like, if if the anti-vaxxers weren't so demonized, unjustly so, uh, clearly we would be able to see through this collective delusion, but we can't. Um, man. And so therefore, you're up till three in the morning playing Jackbox on Twitch. Yeah, yeah. That's, and the society of lizard people really has a box. It's, it's this is the world that the Illuminati have made, um, and it is a dark one. Freemasons. Freemasons too. Yeah. No. Rip. Rip. Okay. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well. That's... Uh... We went from uh, one. We went from an absolute, you know, height of our podcast to an app. Now, oh to, wow. we, we have to a greater <laughs> height. To a greater height. <laughs> Everyone, this has been uh, Alex Jones, and um, no, uh, um, <laughs> okay. Uh, I I don't think uh, there's any coming back from that. Um, no, but, let's just end uh, it now. So now, no, there's no. So for. Everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And we will see you next time if you dare to come back. Please do. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Enlightenment.